Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Brendan Rensink, editor of the North American West in the 21st Century, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Professor Rensink is an associate director of the Charles Redd Center for Western Studies and an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University. Brendan Rensink, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, so to begin, um, could you tell us a bit about yourself, um, maybe specifically how you describe yourself and your work when you introduce yourself to folks uh, both inside and outside of academia? Yeah, I'm a historian of the North American West, which uh, people sometimes furrow their brows because they're not exactly sure what that what it means to be a historian these days. But um, I'm a history professor. I help run a Western American Studies Research Center. And within the American West, my interests and expertise are in transnational borderlands, indigenous peoples, the environment, a number of other subfields. We all wear a lot of different hats. And uh, over the past few years, I've also made something of a turn towards public history or producing work and engagement with general public audiences explicitly in mind. So that's kind of generally how I uh, explain myself or introduce myself. Great. Thank you. Um, yes, I, I would definitely emphasize sort of the public nature of your work these days, which is how I found you. So thank you for <laughs> speaking to a, a broader audience. Um, okay, so so how do you define the North American West in the 21st century, right? That's sort of the overarching theme, the title of this book. And what are the key elements um, that you believe have defined the region in at least the early part of the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, we're only a couple decades in, so it's weird to be doing history that comes all the way up to the present, but um, but I think it's important. Uh, in many ways, the West has uh, persisted uh, in the minds of historians for a long time with a number of key features that have animated a lot of its past, um, and you know, as a, a a region with lots of continuity. Um, that past is inextricably tied to uh, the re- the more recent past uh, and to our present. Um, some of those big things, which uh, I note in the book, are are that continuity, the 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 tying of past and present. We can't understand the present without understanding the past. Historians talk about it as a region of grand convergence, a grand crossroads where peoples and forces from not just around the nation or the continent, but really the world have met and continue to meet and interact in really dynamic fashions. We've talked about the region in the past a lot as a region defined by conquest. And I think that uh, persists to the present. And that's not just in reference to the legacies of indigenous dispossession, but also the conquest of the land and the environment um, or, or the historic efforts uh, to do that. And those are things that we're definitely still reckoning with in the 21st century. And then, I mean, maybe the most generic 
way to define it is a region of great complexity. Uh, the West, quote unquote, is large uh, geographically. So uh, if you talk about the West and try to assign any really generalized attributes to it, they, they fall apart pretty quickly. Um, you know, historically, people described the West as an arid region. It was defined by its lack of rain. But I grew up in Northwest Washington, and there's no lack of uh, you know, rain up there, well, at least historically, maybe a little more in the present. But So it's a really diverse area, which um, with lots of different landscapes, environments, societies, cultures, peoples. So the more you zoom out and talk about uh, the quote-unquote West in generic terms, that you do lose a lot of clarity. So um, as a large study area, that makes for a very complex study area that often we break down into, you know, innumerable sub-regions and so forth. Um, so I think those, uh, we sometimes refer to those as the four Cs. These were something that Patty Limerick came up with years ago, but continuity, convergence, conquest, complexity, those are things that defined it in the past, and I think still uh, very clearly define it in the 21st century as well. Indeed. Um, so you, you started to touch on this in your last ander, answer. Um, so at the end of your introduction, you quote uh, Frank Burgon, or Burgon uh, and he writes, and you quote him, saying, uh, this is the West and America, today a region in conflict with itself. And he poses that as a question. <laughs> um, so in your view, uh, you, again, you started to touch on these conflicts, but what are sort of the central conflicts um, of this dynamic in the West? Well, Frank, in a lot of ways, he's been thinking lately in some of his publications about conflicting identities, regional identities. And that's really at the core of, um, as, as he's thinking about the new West and the old West a lot, uh, that's the conflict he's talking about. If, if you ask a lot of people what it means to be a quote unquote Westerner, uh, many might list off attributes that are somewhat frozen in 19th century frontier era mythologies, you know, the rugged, independent, self-made individuals and so forth. Um, these mythologized personal identities, you know, aren't just about the person. They radiate outward to communities and regions and states and so forth. So this leads to conflict um, within the region as uh, it is rapidly changing in the 20th and now the 21st century. We're a highly mobile and transient population. Um, In some of the really fast-growing metropolitan areas, say um, Phoenix, for example, you know, more and more of the population are recent arrivals. They're not lifelong or generations deep, you know, Westerners from, uh, from Phoenix. Um, and, uh, the, the, and it's not just, uh, incoming new peoples from the you know, other places in the U S but it's tied to global you know, population movements as well, especially along the Pacific coast. So, you know, what Frank's getting at a little bit is, you know, like what happens when a town, for instance, um, whose longtime multi-generational residents think of themselves their society, their economies, uh, their identity in a certain uh, Western way. What then happens when that town and its surrounding region rapidly develops and grows, is filled with newcomers, sees longstanding economies or traditions wane and new ones rise and so forth. It's, it's this conflict between the old West identity that some places hold and the realities of what the new West is becoming. They're, they're often in conflict with one another. 
Yeah, I, I certainly felt that when I was uh, living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a place that both um, feels very sort of contemporary, but also timeless in a way that I think very few parts of uh, sort of the developed United States feel, right? That you don't always feel a connection back to, you know, four or 500 years ago, um, but it's it's very prominent. And at the same time, right, there's like a Tesla dealership just outside of town. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, Santa Fe is a great example of that. These places that their identity, especially in terms of tourism, is very much rooted in a certain version of the historic past. Um, but this place also exists in the present. So uh, it, it makes it makes for it, it makes things quite messy. Yeah, and I was um, I was reading a book on uh, Chimayo, the sacred site just sort of north of Santa Fe. Um, and learned a bit about the history of how sort of Santa Fe um, sort of developed its its current look, sort of that that feel that people think of as being sort of the Southwest sort of Adobe style. Um, and I was I was surprised that uh, a lot of sort of the zoning um, and sort of the historical preservation came from sort of Anglo artists who moved into the area who were not from Santa Fe or necessarily from New Mexico. Uh, or indigenous, or you know, Mexican, or sort of you know, new Mexican. Uh, however, <laughs> they really pushed to sort of uh, crystallize or maintain this specific look from a specific time in the history of that region, um, and and we still see that today, um, alongside, of course, the strip malls and you know, sort of a lot of the modern amenities that you see in a Phoenix or a you know, a Seattle or wherever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, again, you're, you're sort of, uh, as a good conversation does, right, you're, you're sort of anticipating a lot of the directions that I'm hoping to go. So, so you talk about sort of certain updates that need to happen to um, sort of, I guess, popular understandings of the West, the modern West, the North American West. Um, so, so what other kind of updates do you feel um, need to happen so that folks from outside of the region really have a better sense of um, what the North American West is in say 2022 or almost 2023. So this was the original germ or idea of the project is updating our conceptions of the modern West. Uh, Back in the 1980s and 1990s, the field of Western history uh, kind of underwent a big revolution. Um, A lot of historical fields did um, as they're being impacted by new methodologies and new frameworks for thinking about the past. Um, We sometimes call this the new Western history. And um, a big part of that new Western history movement was about the modern West, uh, about thinking explicitly about the region after it moved past, you know, some of its mythologized frontier era dynamics. And this was really great, important work. emphasizing that the region had continued to be a unique place with unique things to study, unique uh, lessons to teach us, you know, past the frontier into the 20th century. And uh, a a tremendous amount of work came, uh, of of modern West work came out in the 1980s and 1990s. So as I was thinking about new topics for uh, a workshop to host uh, here at the Red Center, Um, and then an edited collection that would grow out of it, Um, I came on this idea as I realized that many of these modern West um, 
discussions, you know, be it from books or articles or conferences, all the things that I read in grad school. Um, a, a lot of those are now 30 to, uh, in some cases, 40 years old. We're two full decades into the 21st century. So a discussion of the quote unquote modern West from 1985 doesn't feel quite so modern anymore. So I set out to find some scholars that were working on topics that could have um, one foot in the late 20th century when those previous modern discussions were happening, um, but then another foot as close to the present as possible. So in other words, uh, people that were working on histories that somehow demonstrate uh, late 20th century narratives moving across the century divide and then showing us how they developed in the 21st century, perhaps following on the exact trajectory that had been you know, kind of scoped out uh, in that previous work, or perhaps diverging in, in new ways. So uh, I wasn't thinking about any specific thing that needed updating, uh, just more generally that it was funny to talk about work on the quote unquote modern West when that work was, was 40 years old. Yeah, the term modern is is a slippery one. It's one that I used to like to use, um, but I've sort of gone towards contemporary just because it feels a little bit more like present day. Um, but yeah, it's 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 always hard to find a term I think that encapsulates like the here and now and you know recent times. Um, and obviously, you're a historian, right? So presentism is like a, something that I have been accused of in my work um, because I'm not a straight historian. I'm not a straight sociologist. Um, so I like to think about connections between the moment that I'm living in and past times. But um, sometimes uh, academics that I, I find myself in conversation with um, are wondering why I'm spending so much time thinking about 2022 when um, there's little we can say at this point in their view, just because you know we're living through these times. We don't have access to all the sources we might need to say something sort of um, more profound or more sort of total about this moment. Yeah, I mean, there's a real danger the closer you get to the present in your work uh, of it becoming very quickly outdated as, you know, yeah, as you say, like new sources pop up or things. But uh, we face that in you know, any history you're doing. There might always be new things that come up that um, make it so your work needs to be reconsidered. But when you're doing modern work, that's a definitely a risk. Indeed. So you've divided this volume into five parts. So we have environmental reckonings, indigenous lands and sovereignty, urban and rural transformations, migrant lives and labor, and finally, unresolved politics and law. So what was it about these overarching themes that stood out to you as the editor of this collection as you attempted to sort of organize all of these essays from the various perspectives and authors? Some of this is determined by the scholars and authors who applied to the seminar workshop that I hosted, um, as well as those who did not apply. You're kind of left to deal with uh, what you have on the table. Um, and uh, and I, I did uh, late in the uh, in the process, I solicited um, a couple, uh, a few pieces got dropped from the volume. I brought a few more pieces in because there were just some very large thematic gaps. And there's, there are still are many other very large thematic gaps. But this is the, this is the challenge of doing um, edited volumes. It's hard to, to really cover everything. So as for the five parts, um, 
this is what I landed on. But even within them, there are a lot of thematic overlaps. And there are a number of these chapters which could very well fit in one of the other parts or in a, a differently conceived uh, part division altogether. Um, but essentially, you know, with an edited collection, you're trying to take a bunch of separate works and trying to bring them into conversation with one another. Uh, hosting an in-person seminar where we workshopped these papers together and had group discussions helped facilitate some cross-pollination, but um, organizing them into parts is in a way an attempt to provide some signposts for readers to uh, understand how to think about these pieces in groupings or to try to indicate here's some thematic through lines that, you know, that in these next three chapters uh, you might find useful. Um, I did not do part introductions, uh, which is something I did do um, in my monograph I published a few years ago with even kind of further analytical thematic uh, work to t tie the group groupings together. But uh, in, the, in, in the introduction, we try to uh, lay that out a little bit. But um, I mean, as I said, you know, along with these five parts, I could have divided it uh, so many other different ways. Um, and maybe in a few years, I'll look at these and I'll think, oh, man, I should have done this instead of that. But um, this is just the, the this, this is the challenge of doing it in an edited volume. It's really hard. It's really hard to get them actually in conversation with one another. Well, I, I think your introduction uh, does a nice job, and uh, any book that starts with a Patty Limerick essay, I think, is one worth reading. So <laughs> the combination sets the table, I would argue. <laughs> um, so, so what did you learn from the contributors and their essays, right? So you presumably saw these essays um, at, you know, at, at a relatively finished place uh, during and before this workshop, and then you know, towards publication, I'm sure they, they, maybe they didn't transform, but they certainly improved or emphasized different sort of elements. Um, so, so what did you learn through this process and from these contributors that maybe you didn't know about the North American West? Oh, so much. Um, I mean, in very broad terms, these were all topics that I was generally uh, familiar with. Um, you know, as a, a student of the American West and, you know, I'm a professor, I've taught broadly about the West and I have a fair, you know, I, I joke with my kids who like to tease me that I pretend like I know, like I'm an expert on everything. I don't know if you ever get that uh, from others. Um, I think I, my students <laughs> assume that I know a lot more than I do, <laughs> and I yeah. try to disabuse them of that idea, but they still walk in, you know, every day thinking that I know all of the ins and outs of whatever complex, you know, su subject they are bringing to me. Yeah. And, and so I, what I always tell my kids or, or friends when they tease me, I say, you know, I know a little bit about a lot of things. And that's kind of how I think about my understanding of the West uh, broadly. I, I have a fairly good understanding, albeit shallow, of a lot of different things. Um, so when these essays uh, came in, with each one, uh, I mean, the reason that I, I chose these essays were because they were on you know topics that I felt uh, were relevant, topics that were not too narrow or niche, but that had... I mean, they are very often, they're very narrow in what they're investigating, but with really broad implications. Uh, I, I chose topics I thought resonated with some of the big thematic ideas um, in the modern West. 
But with each of them, as we dove down, uh, I was just astounded, uh, not just by the nitty gritty details, you know, of, uh, of a very narrow, you know, history about um, a city or something that I wasn't terribly familiar with. But um, what, uh, what really shocked me uh, over and over again is just how closely tied the things that were happening in the 21st century, you know, just last year or something, um, really were so, um, could be traced just so clearly back to uh, the late 20th century, or and in some cases, even farther back. So I don't know if I was necessarily learning this, but it was reaffirming this belief that I that I had, and I think most historians have, that uh, we cannot escape history. We cannot understand the present if we don't carefully study our recent past. Um, and this was another one of the big motivations for, for the project. We s- continue to see the West, quote unquote, um, you know, invoked in public discourse to mean all kinds of different things, uh, especially in, in political discourse. Um, but often it's quite misplaced. Um, it's you know often based on some of those really you know mythologized Western tropes and so forth, and then you know a politician or someone uh, will invoke that to to mean something in the present, uh, which is problematic if it's being based on bad history. Um, but moreover, uh, we're a region facing innumerable challenges, and. I'm a firm believer that all the solutions to those challenges will be aided if we more carefully weigh uh, where it is that we just came from. So um, these essays over and over again reaffirmed that belief of the crises or the events of the present uh, only finding their real proper context in a real careful reading of, of the recent past. So I guess building on that idea, um, so, so what do you think receives too much attention? What issues um, when, you know, when you're talking about the West or the North American West um, and, and what issues maybe do you think receive too little attention, right? Because there's, there's often, like I, I think of sort of this moment in 2022, there are a lot of popular representations of the West, whether it's, you know, the the watchers of Yellowstone or something like Westworld, which is sort of a fantasy West or something like Reservation Dogs, which shows, you know, sort of an indigenous teenage experience in Oklahoma, but some people would factor Oklahoma into the West. Some people might not. Right. So there's, there's all of these, um, I guess, opportunities to place attention on this and not that. Yeah. And this is the, (laughs) This is the the quandary we find ourselves in. Not I mean not just with the West, but right, but with with everything. Where do we uh, where do we dedicate energy to um, uh, and, and our attention? Uh, I mean, when I teach about the West, I mean, like especially when I'm if I'm teaching in kind of a broad U.S. survey course, and we get to, to some discussions about the West, I like asking students. Uh, so if you were to take one of my, you know, upper division courses on the American West, um, what would be the big topics? And, you know, fairly consistently, it's it's a pretty uh, reliable set of responses, you know, oh, you know, cowboys and Indians, 
pioneers, um, maybe you know, vigilante violence, you know, like it's, it's all of the things that have been mythologized and romanticized in Western movies or novels or uh, more recently, you know, Western themed video games. Those are kind of all the knee jerk associations that people have with the West as a region. This is what's kind of out there in our popular culture. And uh, I'm not saying that those things don't deserve attention. Those, I mean, many of those things were part of uh, the West's, you know, historic experience, but they tend to suck up all the oxygen in the room. Anytime that someone mentions quote unquote, the West, we just, uh, people just immediately go to those very uh, mythologized tropes that are a bit overplayed. The problem being that we're then ignoring uh, what is, you know, the vast majority of the historical uh, of historical experiences in the West or today. So there's, there's so much that's not receiving enough attention. Um, this is a big part of what that the new Western history of the last 30 or 40 years was trying to do is trying to bring in new perspectives, new voices, trying to give us um, more angles to, to look at the past from and thereby, you know, reveal new truths about our past Um but importantly, um, about uh, our present. Um, so, I mean, for this volume in particular, something that we're trying to remedy is that, you know, too little attention is paid to just how important the West is uh, to the nation um, and how important it is internationally. Um, the West hosts some of our country's most uh, dynamic metropolitan regions. Um, some of the fastest growing or shifting uh, demographics are happening in the West. Some of the most uh, vibrant and nationally important um, industries and economies are rooted in the West. Uh, some of you know, the locations of nationally and internationally significant natural resources are out here in the West. And all of those things in the 21st century are under incredible stress. Um, so if they're of such national importance, uh, you know, the West in the 21st century isn't just a backwater, you know, it's, it's center stage. So, you know, for instance, uh, you know, when large swaths of the West today are facing historic mega droughts, um, you know, people in Florida or somewhere, or, you know, in Europe, somewhere else might, um, write that off as just a small regional story, but, the entire nation really should pay attention because the the dominoes, the ripple effects of say, you know, the Colorado River and its you know the water resources dwindling, they're going to impact everyone, right? It's not just going to impact Utah, Arizona, or Las Vegas, um, uh, and you know some far flung desert landscapes. Uh, it's going to impact Los Angeles. It's going to impact uh, the entire region, and that region is so important to the nation that uh, everyone's really going to have to. Uh, is really going to have to pay attention. So this is, you know, this volume was hoping not just to update our understandings of the modern West, but to do that in service of emphasizing to a broader audience that that what's happening out here in the West today uh, is something that everyone really needs to be paying attention to. So do you have a... I'm hesitant to use this word, but do you have a take on why um, it seems like the history of the West or the North American West uh, is often seen as sort of 
uh, either that it, it ended when the so-called frontier ended, um, or sort of it, it, the history remains sort of apart from larger U.S. history, because, you know, I, I'm somebody who has lived much of my adult life in the West, but I grew up on the East Coast, and sort of my sense of the West is has been, you know, uh, multiplied <laughs> by living in the West, but it, it, it I, I don't know that it should have to be that way that you, you know, you move to California or New Mexico or Utah um, to sort of appreciate the history of the North American West, right? If it's part of this United States, right? Um, but sometimes the history really does still seem sort of apart from sort of the dominant U.S. history trends. Yeah, I, it's just, it's there's a lot of regional bias um, in in, you know, in American history. Um, and this is something that Western historians are, um, that we've been fighting against for a long time. Um, and, you know, at different moments, uh, the West has featured more prominently in, in kind of national narratives. But um, uh, when it has, it's often only been in service of trying to tell some broader national story. Um, but, you know, if you were to go to a, you, you were to, you know, uh, if a foreigner was going to, you know, take a course in America, the American experience, or to read a book or something, uh, a lot of what they might be able to access would be a narrative that is very focused on, you know, the Eastern seaboard, the colonial Northeast, maybe a little bit of the upper Midwest as the region that explains or, or that explains America or the region where, you know, the real American history uh, is rooted. And, uh, and the West is kind of an exotic, you know, backwater uh, in a lot of that. But there's a lot of, you know, work being done to push against that. You know, for example, in, you know, historical circles, you know, that are working on early America, uh, there's a big movement now and this term called vast early America, uh, trying to emphasize that, you know, the colonial era history is not restricted just to where the 13 colonies were, right? There's a whole continent out there. And things that were happening on that entire continent um, have direct legacies that we still feel today everywhere uh, across the continent. So, uh, and of course, you know, the West's a big part of that. But um, but this is all messy, complicated, kind of critical thinking that... Uh, the general public often has a hard time accessing um, if most of what they're consuming about, you know, the region or history or so forth is, you know, via popular culture. Um, popular culture doesn't do very good with really complex, you know, problematized, critical uh, thinking and views, uh, you know, of a region or of history. You know, they want exciting narratives, clean cut narratives with a beginning, middle and end uh, progression, really clear moral lessons to be told. And uh, the West has often just served to tell those kinds of stories uh, instead of actually telling the actual stories of what were happening. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess all history is complicated, um, but certainly the the histories, sort of the over, overlapping histories of the West um, maybe are more complicated than others. Um, I, I know your work has looked at sort of the North American borderlands, and you've spent a lot of time thinking about 
how you know various indigenous peoples um, I think interacted with Mexicans or you know people who then became Mexicans <laughs> um, and folks you know who uh, eventually became uh, from the United States and sort of all of these kinds of interactions um, you know I, I, your your last comment made me think of um, this new book um, Indigenous Continent which sort of makes the argument that we should certainly orient the history of the United States and this continent from the West, or certainly if not from the West as we imagine it now, but not from sort of the East Coast, <laughs> but from sort of all these indigenous nations um, who were here obviously before, but also really sort of shaped the European experience as you know settlers arrived and sort of started to uh, first conceive of themselves as Americans or as from as from the United States of America. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to comment on that, but <laughs> just a thought that I think connects broadly. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, but I mean, there's real power in 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 thinking and taking familiar narratives, right, and looking at them from a, a new perspective. Um, it it can really f- fundamentally not just um, change how we think about the past or the present, but it really enriches um, how we think about it. It gives us just so much more to think about. And I've, I always argue, not, I don't argue with my students, but I always try to impress upon my students that um, while, you know, a really nice clean cut narrative, you know, say of Western expansion that kind of provides a national kind of origin story, creation myth for the nation, like that's comforting. It, um, it, it serves lots of political and cultural purposes, I guess. Um, it's something that you, uh, that helps us maybe sleep at night at times. Cause we, we understand, Oh, here's what happened and why. And that, that all makes sense, but we're doing ourselves a real disservice that doesn't help us really at all, uh, in dealing with, uh, the issues that we're, we're facing today. And I mean, I know people throw around presentist as like a, a dirty word, but uh, if, if we're not th- think, if we're not using history to think about the present or to understand the present, uh, I think we're missing out on most of the power of history. Right. So by kind of whitewashing or restricting uh, history down to a very specific set of narratives, uh, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot because uh, the present is really messy and complex. So we need to think about some messy, complex pasts to understand how we got here. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, you know, what, one of the ways that I came to your work is because my work often focuses on the, the Latter Day Saint community. Um, you know, sometimes called Mormons. Um, and what was interesting to me was, as you're suggesting, looking at a community that had been presented to me in a certain light um, and certain, you know, parts of sort of LDS history were emphasized to me and trying to come at um, an understanding from a different angle, um, which which has really opened up a whole a whole new world um, to me because, you know, uh, I. I realize I'm speaking to a professor who works at BYU, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm trying to tread lightly. But you know, I, I didn't the the Mormon community, and that's what they were called when I was growing up. Um, that was presented to me was not necessarily presented in you know a positive light. Not that it needs to be positive, but certainly not a complex and full sort of light um, that you would hope any community would receive. 
Um, so my own work has really tried to understand um, what it would have been like um, for early sort of Latter-day Saints as, you know, as sort of the migration happened to the West um, and sort of how communities um, who, you know, thought of themselves as pioneers, right, dealt with sort of environmental and cultural circumstances that they found. And then also sort of um, from sort of a different perspective, how sort of the indigenous peoples they encountered in places like the Salt Lake Valley, how those interactions went and how that has shaped the present sort of relationship that folks have um, within the LDS community to, you know, uh, to Utah, to Desiree, however you want to sort of think about it, but also how the Utes <laughs> factor into mm-hmm. this story and, you know, the many other indigenous folks that um, those early Mormon pioneers would have encountered. Um, so again, it gets yeah, it's, complex it, really quickly, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, any honest reckoning or study of the past or, or of the present, like if it's not um, overwhelmingly messy and complex, then, then we're just not being not being honest. And this is where we get this, you know, again, this real disconnect between, you know, the kind of popular imaginings that the public has, say, about the West and then what scholars are are trying to do. But so much of it's driven by, you know, in your example, kind of ideas uh, about the LDS community that were projected on it, right? Or if we're thinking about the West, you know, from the moment Europeans arrived, they were projecting ideas on the region, what they wanted to find in the West or what they wanted to not find, right? Um, I mean, because originally they they were hoping to not find a continent at all, right? Um, but they were projecting what they, then what they could hope, what they hoped they could do out West. Um, but so much of this, you know, ignores, be it intentionally or not, the realities on the ground of who was um, already living there or who lives here now, what environmental realities actually were, you know, what restrictions say Western environments uh, should have been placing on them. But instead, uh, you know, as a people, we've we've projected on the West all kinds of things and then stuck our heads in the sand uh, and ignored the realities of what it actually was and what it is today, which again, um, it doesn't do us any favors if we're trying to solve present crises. If, um, if how we think about a region is still driven by the the imaginings that we've projected on it historically, you know, and in the present, if it's, if it's not messy, then, then it's not history. Right. And it's not representing humans because the lives of humans <laughs> are anything but simple. Especially yeah, who would have guessed? Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> who would have guessed if, if you've lived a moment <laughs> on this planet? Uh, yeah. Hopefully that immediately, uh, rises to the surface, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, so what do you think is the hardest sort of thing to understand about um, this region for those who are not from or do not live in or maybe don't even study the North American West? Um, well, again, because it's such a big region, it's uh, it's hard to try to, you know, to t- try to take it all in which is what leads to a lot of the kind of big overgeneralizations. Because um, if you're going to try to talk about things broadly, you, you have to really simplify things and overgeneralize a bit. Um, I think what is hard for a lot of the general public, though, is um, not even necessarily the content of history, because there's no shortage of... I, mean, I meet people, we, we sometimes call them history buffs, which sometimes 
feels a little bit pejorative, but like, um, you know, people who don't have historical training, but they have read, you know, they have their topics that they're interested in and they have read everything they can find. And some of them are even collecting, you know, primary documents and um, they have a tremendous uh, amount of knowledge um, of the West, but what sometimes they lack and what we gain, uh, you know, by say like, you know, going to college or graduate school and getting advanced degrees in history is, uh, we, we gain a set of skills which train us, um, not just how to find the answers, but trains us what kinds of questions to ask. And this is something that I think the general public, uh, struggles with. They haven't had this kind of training that helps them know the right questions to ask. And that's something with my students that I'm always pushing really hard on, on, you know, critical thinking skills. And it's not, it's, you know, like we were joking about earlier, how people sometimes tease us that we're know-it-alls and everything. I'm like, no, I'm not a know-it-all about the West or about any other historical topic, really. But I do think that I have developed a set of skills um, of inquiry of knowing what kinds of questions to ask. So if you lay a historical topic or a, you know, historical problem on my desk, even if it's something I'm not very familiar with, um, I have a set of questions and things that I'll start asking of it and interrogating of it to start picking it apart and understanding it. And that's, that's really hard for the general public to, uh, to, to, to learn how to do, um, it's not something that our K-12 education has always done a good job uh, teaching for the general public either, right? You know, so many history classes for a lot of us in middle school and high school, you know, is memorizing names and dates. That, that's just memorizing the, the content, which is not what the general public needs. The general public needs to know how to ask questions, how to think critically. Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it, that makes me think of uh, when, when I first went to uh, college and realized that geography was not just like the map and understanding what places are, you know, spread across the earth, right? That geography is this discipline that asks specific questions and isn't this like stagnant thing where you're just basically looking at a globe. And, and, and I think you're right that sometimes history really is seen as, you know, memorizing names and dates and sort of moving on because that timeline is established, it's static, um, there aren't necessarily new entrants um, who, you know, were buried in history and needed to be excavated. You know, you just sort of have this agreed upon um, thing that is history and this is our history as folks from the United States or living in the United States and it is not subject to any revision or placing a different emphasis on this movement or that person or this year. Um, yeah. So, just... but I mean, but like the the who, what, where's, and when's, like those are all very important. But what each successive generation brings to them is the asking of the hows and the whys, and the so what what does it all mean? And that's where the rubber, you know, really hits the road. And that's where that that's why we keep writing history because you know as the pres the as our circumstances in the present change we start asking different questions about the past. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as, as, you know, professional historians, we're, we're trying to do, uh, we're, we're trying to do the best we can to kind of guide the public in asking some of those questions, whether we're succeeding or not, I don't, I'm not sure, but that's kind of the endeavor. Yeah. I, I think 
historians broadly are doing a fine job these days. And yet, right, they, they have to find, uh, the work has to find an audience, right, has to find people who are interested in learning about these topics and sort of avenues um, to exposure, right? If, if you're never exposed to this kind of historical approach, uh, you, you may never find it, or you may not realize it's there in the first place. So, um, so sort of speaking of sort of that, uh, that idea. Uh, so you work at the Charles Red Center for Western Studies. Um, and as, as I mentioned earlier, you're a professor at BYU. Um, so, so what role do you think the Red Center and BYU play in updating the region's history um, and sort of understandings about the North American West? Right? Because you're at a higher education institution uh, that is obviously connected to a religious faith. Um, so there are lots of sort of elements to sort of uh, the Red Center and BYU's role that, um, you know, that I, I imagine you've reflected on. Yeah. So uh, we, just this year, um, we celebrated our 50th anniversary uh, at the, it's, it's the Charles Red Center for Western Studies. So we're an interdisciplinary research center focused on you know, increasing public understanding and scholarly inquiry into uh, the West. We, we, we put a lot of emphasis on the Intermountain West, but oh, but some of what we do is more broadly conceived about the, the broader North American West as well. Um, we're very fortunate in that, um, you know, over the, this past 50 years, there's been um, some very generous families who have um, a, a donated some very large sums of money. So we have some healthy endowments that... Um, uh, that we can now operate, um, you know, using the interest, you know, off of those endowment funds to um, try to support um, scholarship inquiry um, and all kinds of, you know, public things as well. So we, you know, we, we host seminars and workshops uh, and then publish volumes like the one we're talking about today. We host um, lectures that are open to the public and streamed online where we bring in scholars um, History, you know, is kind of our strongest, uh, traditionally our strong suit. I'm a historian. Um, some of the past um, directors and associate directors, assistant directors here have been historians. But um, uh, we bring in scholars from all kinds of different disciplines. And then uh, we provide funding uh, every year, um, uh, enormous amounts of money in the form of grants and fellowships or awards um, that go out to people uh, in I mean, really every conceivable discipline, um, not just history or the social sciences or the humanities, but also, you know, the environmental sciences, um, uh, the fine arts, um, anyone working on anything that's relevant, that's increasing kind of public understanding of the West, um, we've been able to give people in those disciplines money. We've also been able to give lots of public institutions. So, you know, historical societies or, you know, um, humanities councils or uh, a city library, all kinds of public um, institutions. We um, also have some funding categories that help them put on events or host lectures or do things that are relevant to their communities here in the West as well. So uh, a lot of how we view our role is, uh, you know, that we've been we've been fortunate and blessed with these funds. So how can we use them to um, facilitate uh, new research and work being done? How can we facilitate uh, bridging the gap between academic research and the general public? And how can we facilitate kind of broader 
increased public understanding uh, of of the West. Um, and you know, having a job where I just give away money all day is it's pretty great. And there, there's you know the the kind of work that's being done out there is just really really fantastic. I would imagine you've made a lot of friends for a lot of reasons uh, since being what the associate director at the Red Center. Um, but yes, I would agree as, as an outside observer, um, everything I've seen coming out of the Red Center is is really impressive work and really focus on parts of this country uh, that don't always receive um, as much attention. And that's that's a wonderful contribution. Um, so, and it, and it, yeah. it dovetails also with BYU more broadly. So we're predominantly an undergraduate institution. We, we do have a number of graduate programs and there's a law school, um, but most of our students are undergrads and kind of really, you know, I mean, if you've ever driven by campus, you know, the big sign on the, at the bottom of the hill, it says, enter to learn, go forth to serve. And so this idea of kind of civic engagement or of um, training students to be um, thoughtful um, you know, critical thinking, compassionate citizens that, that then go out into the world. And for a lot of them, it's just going back out into the West, as many of them are from the West. Um, you know, a, a lot of what we also do at the Red Center is trying to serve that mission here at BYU of, uh, of serving our undergraduate students and helping them, you know, become good citizens, good neighbors, uh, informed uh, citizens and neighbors. And, you know, we find a lot of a lot of gratification in, in serving that mission as well. Yes. Um, so we're, we're coming towards the end. Um, so I, I guess I'll ask a question that you hear it a lot. You hear at the end of a lot of podcasts, um, but I'm going to sort of expand upon it a little bit. Um, so what books, podcasts, movies, artwork, music, maybe even food or recipes um, would you recommend to someone who wants to learn about the past, uh, the present, and the future of the North American West? Oh, man. I mean, this is going to be like drinking from a fire hose. You know, this is not, this is a dangerous question to ask of, you know, someone who spends their their days just reading books. Um, yeah, I will note uh, that um, in your introductory <laughs> essay, uh, somebody could probably read for the next year based on the the books that you reference, uh, not necessarily in the notes, but in the text. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the yeah in this anthology's introduction, I talk a little bit about uh, like some of the, te- the the history of textbooks and what's been written, kind of broadly, like surveys about the West. Um, I mean, there's so much. The problem is there's just so much amazing good work being done. But you know, like podcasts like this one. Um, I run a monthly podcast called Writing Westward, where I interview writers. Um, places like that, or you know, tr- I, I hesitate to tell people to go follow, you know, writers and historians or people on social media because social media is such a disaster. But um, th- there's a lot of kind of informal ways that people can kind of tap into uh, what's being done, the kind of work that's being done and um, broadly about the West or, you know, uh, even more, uh, more focused locally, you know, wherever people live, uh, especially, you know, out here in the West, there's probably some local um, historical groups that are hosting things. There's um, hopefully a, you know, good historical society or humanities council that is, kind of doing the same types of things that the Red Center is doing, you know, trying to give a platform to um, the people who are doing, you know, good work. 
So, I mean, just kind of opening, I always tell people just kind of pick the things that you're interested in and then dig around a little bit and try to tap into, you know, these these really vibrant fields of research and publishing, um, you know, academic and popular. There's just, there's just so much being done uh, that whatever interest someone has, uh, if they do a little work, they should be able to tap into it and, and figure out what's, what's coming out and what's happening. Well, I'll put a plug in for your podcast, uh, Writing Westward. <laughs> Highly recommended. Um, <laughs> since we're on a podcast, I'll recommend another podcast as well, uh, Mountain and Prairie, which focuses on the West. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there. But yes, Writing <laughs> Westward, <laughs> your podcast is a wonderful podcast that if folks just listen to that, I think um, their understanding about all sorts of different issues related to the West uh, would improve, increase. Um, so yes, so that is a great contribution. Um, and I think you're reaching a lot of people who might not sit down and read um, your wonderful books, but uh, might be led to your books by first engaging uh, with your podcast. So yeah, well played, I guess. <laughs> well, that's that's the hope. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, so to close, um, I asked you before we uh, hit record if you would mind reading uh, the final musings section of your introductory essay. So are you still game? Yeah, this seems profoundly awkward, you know, reading your own work out loud. But um, but yeah, this might be a good way to wrap up. And, and there's a couple of things here that we've we've touched on a little bit, but that's fine. So I mean, yeah. So for listeners, this is just kind of the final paragraph um, out of the this volume's introduction. So you want me to just go ahead and read it? Yes, please. Okay. Final musings. In the end, what do the essays in this volume offer us? It seems the closer we pull Western histories to the present, the more our investigations muddy the waters, and the less they offer clarity and resolution. As he weighed our current collision of old and new Wests, Frank Bergen recently mused, this is the West, and America, today, a region in conflict with itself. Perhaps it's fitting, therefore, if reviewing modern Western history and ongoing 21st century Western issues leaves us feeling no less conflicted than when we began. In 1987 and again in 2000, Patricia Nelson, Nelson Limerick categorized the West as a place of continuity, convergence, conquest, and complexity. After another 20 years, the authors in this volume find the West no less tied to its past, no less challenged by the peoples and cultures that meet and mix there, no less troubled by the legacies and ongoing forms of settler, environmental, cultural, and other conquests, and no less confused by the ever-accelerating complexities unfolding in this dynamic region. The scholarship of a previous generation of quote-unquote modern West scholars resoundingly declared that trouble had long been and still was on the horizon, and that Westerners needed to reckon with their past if they were to thrive in the future. Either blinded by the hubris of modern society or swept along by the simple inertia of time, we may not have stopped to pause, think, confer, and plan as much as we should have. We renew the call through these essays. The 21st century West straddles multiple modern frontiers, not the least of which is the temporal frontier between our unsettled past and uncertain future. To chart positive futures for the countless populations, landscapes, and forces that make up the 20th century West, our recent and more distant histories demand that we do pause, take careful stock of where we are, where we have come from, and where we wish to go. 
A region as magnificently diverse, dynamic, and beautiful as this deserves no less, and in fact, deserves much more. Thank you. Um, may I ask, when was the last time you read that? Oh, gosh. I don't even know. Last time I read it out loud would have been, I don't know, back when I was editing everything. But um, that, that sounds better than I, than I thought it would, not... I not, think not it sounds pretty good. Uh, I think it <laughs> encapsulates this uh, collection uh, very well um, and certainly has left me thinking about a lot of questions. And since you said uh, with your students, you tried to raise more questions than you answer, I, I think that is an appropriate way to end. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So my guest has been Brendan Rensink. Uh, so thank you, Brendan. And this concludes another episode of the New Books Network.